and welcome to the Radical Fabulatorium. I'm your host, John Adam Ian. Okay, on today's episode, I welcome back Professor Aaron Granger from the Chemistry Department at the University of New Brunswick in St. John, New Brunswick. We sit down for another fun chat about science, including bias, combustion, fireworks, science outreach, the peer review system, and more. I also just recently started a Patreon page for the Radical Fabulatorium, so if you feel like supporting the show, you can check out patreon.com slash theradfab. All right, here we go. Round two with Professor Aaron Granger. Enjoy. Okay, welcome back to the Radical Fabulatorium. I'm joined again by Professor Aaron Granger. Hey, Prof. How you doing? Good. Good to see you again. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for coming back on the show. No, glad to, uh, glad to be here. Yeah, it's great. Um, so last time we were kind of talking about all kinds of things science, but uh, I know we ended the chat saying we didn't talk a whole lot about science outreach. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. We had a whole plan and then it never got there. It never got there. Well, I, yeah, sometimes I get sidetracked just kind of asking questions that I'm curious about. So um, that was probably my fault, but you're back again. So no, That's right. We cool. can do it today. <laughs> yeah, let's do it right away. So I don't forget again. So science outreach, what's that? Maybe you can tell the listeners kind of like how you view science outreach. Right. So I, I found that science outreach has quite a lot of variety to it. It covers a lot of different facets. Um, but in my mind, science outreach uh, addresses kind of two things. One, it addresses the kind of visceral response that people have to hearing about something cool and, you know, that might look or sound or or just be interesting, you know, intellectually. So it kind of gets people jazzed, right? Gets people hooked on the idea of science. Okay. Um, But then the other side of the coin is the idea of informative science outreach, where the goal is to, you know, convey information rather than just enthusiasm. Okay. Do you find one comes before the other? I find that, I I don't believe that one comes before the other. I think they are just suited for different contexts. Okay. So certainly if you're working with, you know, something like, you know, small children, you're not really worried too much about content delivery. Okay. Right? You're trying to get them hooked on the idea and the themes and, you know, the variety of things that science can be and get them, I guess, exposure to some content in the sense of, you know, these are the types of things that science is. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're doing outreach for adults, it can either be that entertaining enthusiasm kind of thing, okay. or it can be outreach in the sense of clearing up misinformation, mm, right? okay. which is a very common kind of thing that gets done in, in the area of science research, Okay, or outreach, I should say. Would you have any examples of that? Because that, that is interesting, clearing up misinformation. Yeah. So, I mean, there's certainly a lot of very popular science communicators mm-hmm. especially especially right now you know with, with the internet right so when i was a kid it was um, people like bill nye the science guy or you know people like that who had shows or events where they would talk about science and now that was a lot of um enthusiasm based outreach okay but it was also a little bit of misinformation correcting. Uh, But more relevant recently would be people like uh, Joe Schwartz. Joe Schwartz. He's a communicator. He's a scientist from uh, McGill University, a chemist. Oh, cool. Okay. And he he covers a lot of a lot of science topics on radio shows and publications. He's got a whole series of uh, books, you know, public, you know, general pop science type books where he addresses things like misinformation related to uh, nutrition or health or, um, you know, areas like that where people are saying things online or wherever that may not be true or may be true in a misleading way. Okay. Um, And also, you know, much more modern and TikTok friendly would be somebody like Hank Green. Oh, yeah. Okay. uh, Who does, I think, believe he's chemist or chemical engineer um but he does a lot of similar types of things where he addresses uh, things like um, misuse of statistics or 
misinformation related to like homeopathy versus uh, scientifically based medicine or things like this. Okay. Um, and then another one that that comes up is loss from my memory. Uh, immediately, as soon as Just I go. thought of it, <laughs> in one ear and out the other. Yeah, that happens. It's no big yeah. deal. I know Hank Green, like he, he and his brother both kind of team up like, they have a bunch of YouTube channels like Crash Course and SciShow. That's right. I remember him explaining like how RNA research back during the, the dark years there was actually like decades in the making it wasn't just some brand new no, technology that came out right. of nowhere so i actually thought that video was was interesting or good for helping to dis- dispel misinformation in that period of time that we don't have to go down that road i just remember no watching no that video. certainly that that was that definitely made the rounds yeah. but yeah so he and his brother yeah definitely do a lot of that work and they they bridge the gap between enthusiasm and content delivery really really well mm-hmm. um the other one i was thinking of i finally remembered was somebody like uh, the guy who writes the comic XKCD. Oh yeah, okay. Yeah, Randall Monroe is his name. He's okay. got a, a. The comic itself addresses a lot of scientific issues and some misinformation, but uh, mostly he's of the enthusiasm brand. Okay, uh, and he's got a number of nonfiction books where he uses scientific methods to address you know, ridiculous scenarios. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's modeling the approach that a scientist would use when looking at something just totally bananas that would never really happen, but is exciting to think about. Okay. So, so when you're doing science, if you do science outreach yourself to try to correct misinformation, do you ever encounter like people that are resistant to that information? It's funny. I've never encountered that. Um, but also I typically am not doing the misinformation countering. So I'm much more likely to be involved in, um, the, the enthusiasm, type of outreach. Okay. Uh, I mean, I, I have done some in the past and you get a little bit of resistance mm-hmm. and where that happens is typically in the area of something controversial, mm-hmm. right? So uh, one of the, the common areas is vaccine misinformation, right? Mm-hmm. Which is very, very prevalent topic today, but something, you know, also very relevant for listeners in New Brunswick would be uh, something like Roundup or mm. glyphosate spraying and toxicity concerns related to that. Or if you've got any older listeners, the Agent Orange and Cancer Connection uh, with all of the dumping that was done at Base Gage Town, mm-hmm. right? So a lot of the times when, you know, typically local scientists speak about those topics, it's not necessarily even addressing misinformation so much as um, addressing the fact that people often misunderstand uh, what sources are actually saying. Mm -hmm. Um, So the problem is a lot of scientific literature requires interpretation. Mm -hmm. So especially with something like uh, a cancer-causing agent, something carcinogenic, there are organizations that categorize those uh, materials as being possibly carcinogenic, possibly gives you cancer, or probable or suspected of or you know some other variation and it's always a very nuanced term okay that often gets used in media uh, without the nuance added so something would be called a possible carcinogen and it would be possible had a has a very technical meaning in whatever documentation they pulled that information from okay but possible also has a very common everyday usage mm-hmm. meaning and it doesn't quite overlap okay so that's a, that's something that is much more likely to be done i think locally generally we're more of the hey isn't science dope mm-hmm. kind of thing yeah okay and the yeah and the way and the media typical media whatever you want to think about it like they have such a small amount of time to kind of like sh- shove all that information to their viewers Whereas like nowadays with podcasts and stuff, you can probably find these long form conversations where people are able to like blend both kinds of science outreach where they're getting people enthusiastic, but also it's like an hour long conversation so they can walk through more complicated topics. That's right. So you you definitely can get a lot of that. Um, There's always a danger though with anything like this um, where if you do one of those long form things, you still have to be careful if you're watching or listening to something like that, mm-hmm. um, that you know where it's coming from. Because you always have to worry about, uh, are things edited out? Are uh, different viewpoints given more or less 
you know, equal time, mm-hmm. um, you know, is the producer of whatever media you're listening to uh, going to suffer from some inherent bias, you know, intentional or not, mm-hmm. right? You know, are they driven by, you know, as they say, getting clicks? Yeah. Um, and that can be, that's often mitigated in long form because you have time to explore the nuance, mm-hmm. um, but still something that everybody should be kind of cautious about when when treating something as gospel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the bias thing is tough because it can happen without you even realizing Oh, that and you're implementing bias. It's it's a huge problem, and yeah. you know historically, it's funny. Scientists always, you know, in the past, tried to strive for this inhuman objectivity, and there is no bias because we we're very objective and we are extra careful to be precise with our language and and whatnot. And it's you know it's it's an admirable thing to strive for, but it's it's almost laughable, right? Mm-hmm. It's people have to be aware that. They may have biases. You know, mm-hmm. will they act on those biases? Will it influence them? It's hard to say, but it's, it's important to be upfront, at least with yourself, when you're doing any research or doing any communicating, that you're aware that you may have put some spin on it unintentionally. Mm-hmm. Even even if it's not negative, right? It's something to always be striving for, a lack of bias. And is that one of the benefits of like a, the peer review system? Is that that's supposed to help negate some of that bias or ca- catch some of that bias? That is, that is certainly one of the reasons for using that system. Absolutely. I mean, it's also it's also a very flawed system. I mean, there are all sorts of competing incentives, uh, just like any other human system. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's probably net more positive. Than detrimental okay yeah but i mean that's certainly one of the many many things that it's supposed to catch okay yeah cool because nowadays with like social media you could you can just throw out your scientific opinions right away come off pretty professional sounding oh but there's no way for you to be no there's disputed. no disputed no well that's right i mean unless somebody sees it and objects mm-hmm. right and so you you have to be careful with any science outreach science communication in general mm-hmm. um that you trust your source Mm -hmm. because as you say, people can sound very authoritative. And in some cases that's not the end of the world. If they're not particularly authoritative, Mm -hmm. if the goal is to get people hyped, right? Get people interested and, you know, stick them into the science pipeline, right? Get them early. Yeah. Uh, You know, you, you can make a case that you don't want to lie to kids, but at the same time, you're not necessarily causing them problems down the road. Mm-hmm. So, you know, th- this comes up, there's always debate amongst uh, scientist community, particularly in chemistry, because a lot of the science outreach that chemists do to get people hooked is flashy. Okay. Um, so chemists tend to like bright colors, color changes, sudden dramatic like changes of state from liquids to solids or ideally gases to solids just a huge sudden change that's dramatic Mm -hmm. Uh, explosions and fire like we tend to like flash Mm -hmm. um and i kind of i kind of lost the train of my thought here was that that makes me think of um like everyone can probably remember making a volcano when they were like five or six, right? Right. And then the vinegar into the, is it baking soda? Baking soda, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that'd be pretty, that's a, that was like a pretty flashy way to first uh, like build up enthusiasm. Right. And and this is the thing, like we, oh, so yes, so back to the, the flash. So often chemists will, you know, not fight, but squabble over. When you're doing outreach with kids like that, yeah. it's very easy to, do it in a sort of alchemical, uh, like chemistry magic okay. kind of format where you're doing these big dramatic changes and colorful flaming lights and whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but the worry is that if you mystify it and make it seem like magic, mm-hmm. that you're making it seem less accessible, more difficult, as okay. opposed to you know demonstrating some physical characteristics of some material. Okay. Um, so it could be like come off as intimidating when really you're trying to like you're trying to get people hyped up, but it actually might be intimidating some people. That's right. They may think it's very interesting, very cool, but maybe too hard for them, or maybe you know shrouded in mystery, so it's difficult to learn. Or okay, and so you you worry about that. 
but I mean to to the childhood fun experiment that everybody does for the very first science fair in you know second grade. Yeah, that is actually a phenomenal chemical outreach thing. Okay, so it, it it's actually fantastic, and you can use it at a multiple different levels. You can use it. Uh, for little toddlers, you know, they just like making the paper mache volcano and seeing the foam spill out. Yeah. And you can do that all through grade school and middle school, all through to high school or university, because it also demonstrates a really important, you know, chemical effect, which is that some acid-base reactions produce carbonic acid. Okay. And carbonic acid will spontaneously decompose to make carbon dioxide gas, which is the source of those bubbles that fills up your container. And those are all topics that are frequently taught at the high school and college level. Okay. Right. So like high school and, you know, first year university level. Okay. So these are things that you will have used as examples in your classes, maybe even in your lab. And to make it into a fun demonstration, you can teach them how to teach their kids with something that they're going to do anyway, but at least now they'll know why it's happening. Why it's happening. Right. Okay, cool. And yeah, that can spark curiosity. Is there, so I, I've always heard people using that trick too to declog or unclog like a drain that's not seriously clogged up. Is that like a real life application of that volcano? Are there are there any other real life applications that come to mind that? Oh, yeah. I mean, so, I mean, very, very broadly, that's how rockets work. Mm, okay. Right. I mean, so you have a chemical reaction that produces at the end a gas that comes shooting out of a tube, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it it's a different mechanism for rocket fuel. It's not an acid-base reaction, uh, but it's still a chemical process that at the end result produces a gas that expands through a narrow container, mm-hmm. uh, which is what causes the volcano to shoot upwards, mm. right? You've got the gas forming, but it's pushing the liquid above it up. Mm-hmm. And so it comes outside of the, you know, runs down the side of the volcano. And with, you know, rocket ships, jet fuel or rocket fuels, uh, you're producing gas at a high rate and it comes pushing out through a small nozzle. That's your, that's your rocket. Okay. Uh, it's the same way, uh, you know, guns and cannons and everything work. Again, it's a sudden, wildly uncontrolled uh, chemical reaction that produces a gas. That gas pushes on something else. Mm-hmm. So yeah, absolutely. It's it's a very versatile uh, kind of concept. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's interesting that you say that because yeah, the volcano is, I mean, it's coming up at the volcano because, but it's the shape of the volcano that's causing it to rise because that reaction has to go somewhere. That's right. Yeah. So you end up with all of this liquid, right? I mean, so you, your acid, your vinegar is a liquid and when you mix in the baking soda, you have kind of a solution that forms, right? You dissolve the baking soda into the vinegar, mm-hmm. and then all the bubbles start to form inside that solution, and the bubbles expand because right? mm-hmm. they're a gas and they're trying to expand to fill their container, and it displaces some of the liquid above it, which is slowly becoming less dense as the bubbles start to form and take up space, and eventually you end up with if you have a narrow enough tube, uh, enough bubbles form and the liquid gets less dense enough that it can rise up. Mm-hmm. But if you had uh, you know, a much wider tube, your bubbles would never escape the top of the volcano. Okay. If you had cracks in that tube leading to the outside of the volcano, uh, you wouldn't get any gushing at the top. You would get bubbles start to seep out through the sides of the volcano. So you can use it as illustrative of the way that pressurized materials move through tubes too, right? Mm-hmm. It covers a wide, actually, if you really wanted to, you could use it in quite a number of different ways. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. And then thinking about rockets, it's really, it's okay. So it's kind of the same concept because it's pushing the gas out the the, the nozzle of the engine or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that's forcing kind of the energy to go in a specific direction. That's right. And that's really what causes the rocket to, to lift off. Yeah. Yeah. And you can do this uh, yourself. I mean, it, it's, trickier now because everybody's moved to digital but historically one of the things that you would do with kids after you showed them that baking soda vinegar volcano is you would give them a film canister okay which i mean dating myself right there yeah but you give them a film canister and you plunk it full of 
vinegar and baking soda and you slap the cap on it and you turn it upside down and the pressure will build and build and build and eventually it will pop the bottom off of the top okay and you'd send it shooting up into the air you'd make your own little rocket oh interesting yeah okay and film canister you mean like the film you put in the old cameras like yeah the, like yeah. actual like the old kodak film the, the old kodak <laughs> kodak <laughs> i guess they're dead too so maybe no one even knows right that. yeah the old light sensitive photographic film roles yeah yeah that's really cool yeah, yeah so that's interesting so i mean that's funny that you can make that connection between because like i mean it's really kind of a fundamental force really is what we're talking about right like yeah so it scales up into all these reality situations well that that's it right i mean a lot of a lot of the things that get used at kind of an industrial societal level scale uh, have analogs that are pretty easy to demonstrate yeah, like by analogy, I mean, it's certainly not the same materials or anything, mm -hmm. but, you know, in a broadly similar fashion, you can demonstrate them to kids or you can have older kids try them out themselves. Um, and a lot of the times it works a little bit like the volcano to film canister rocket progression, mm -hmm. right? You can demonstrate something that's just fun with no kind of learning objectives, mm -hmm. the volcano, uh, but if you've got older kids or kids who are interested, you can often say, all right, we saw the fun thing that maybe you saw when you were even littler. Did you know that there's a practical application of this? And then you can put it into a newer, different, maybe more practical, maybe more economic type mindset. Mm -hmm. uh, and you can kind of build on something that's familiar, mm -hmm. which often makes things a little bit more approachable for people. Mm -hmm. right? You're not doing a totally new concept. Yeah. Okay. And do you find in some younger folks that it, it kind of initiates that, those why questions? Like you kind of be like, why is that happening? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. No. And you get that far more with children than you do with adults. Yeah. Uh, which I, you know, I, you know, it's the cliche, the little kid that just keeps asking why until the parents exasperated. Yeah. Um, but no, kids absolutely do ask the why questions. And I, you know, I don't know what it is. No, not a child psychologist, but they, they tend to ask questions that they they definitely ask why to everything, and it's it doesn't take very long before you hit a I don't know I don't know yeah. right like even trained professionals like it doesn't take very long <laughs> yeah um, but they also will ask questions that seem unrelated uh -huh. if you know a little bit because you you understand why they're not connected ideas but to kids they they might see. Um, well, in both cases, you know, in some example, the thing we were looking at moved and they'd say, is it the same mechanism? Mm -hmm. You say, well, no, one's got, one's got legs, man. One of them is a chemical reaction. It's a totally different, you know, kettle of fish. Yeah. But to them, they've focused on one area and they ask you, well, shouldn't it work like this? Mm -hmm. And that's actually fantastic because then you get to explain a new concept and you can say, all right, look at how this one is one way yeah. and this is the other, mm -hmm. right? So you get a lot with what you would consider to be, you know, a quote, bad question. You actually get a chance to explore something deeper. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you, you get people that know a bit about something, often you don't find out that there's misconceptions happening until later. Until later. But with, okay. with little kids and their wildly unconnected questions, yeah. you see the disconnects really quickly and mm -hmm. you can address them. That's interesting. So it's like they might be, they see something moving and then another thing moving and it's a, they're achieving the same goal, but the way it happened is totally different. Yeah, but all right. they see is that the, the same thing happened. So they must be doing, must be the same systems involved or something like right, that. Right. Yeah. And so you can see that all the time too with something, you know, as easy as. Uh, colors. Okay. Right. So you can have a material that looks one color, right? That is absorbing all the other colors of light and only reflecting the color that is seen by your eye. Mm -hmm. Or you can have a color that appears uh, like if you shine light through a prism and you split it into a rainbow, like you do in you know elementary school, right? Mm -hmm. You can get the same color blue by that diffraction, that refraction process. Uh, as you can get by looking at a you know blue piece of material that was made by dyeing a piece of cloth with a certain dye that only reflects blue light. Mm -hmm. So you can get to the same end result through different mechanisms. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. Huh. Do you remember maybe the first thing that kind of got you interested in science as a as a child or even later in life? If it no, not as a child. I think I mean I was always 
I was always definitely on the the nerdy side of things, so I was hooked pretty early. So I, I don't remember exactly what it was, but I definitely remember in high school uh, or even earlier, I went to a a science summer camp, a day camp type of thing, maybe in middle school, and I met a high school teacher, Peter Mahaffey, um, and you know it was just a day camp. We did fun little simplified, safer versions of experiments you would do in high school or university. Okay. And I remember having a great time there. And then when I went to high school, I was lucky enough to have that same teacher as my high school chemistry teacher. Uh, and he did a demonstration that has stuck with me forever. Uh, it's one that I still do today. Um, so what he would do is he would talk about a certain type of combustion reaction. And so burning something. Mm -hmm. And he would talk about it in the context of rates. So how fast or slow do reactions happen? Okay. And he would give us a piece of paper, or he wouldn't give it to us. He would, you know, hold out a piece of paper. He would weigh it on a balance in the classroom and he would get a mass. You know, find out how heavy it is. Okay. And then he would light the paper on fire. And it would, you know, take a couple of seconds to burn. It's a sheet of paper. And he would then weigh out a similar mass of uh, another plant. So he would use lycopodium, which is a, a type of moss. Um, lycopodium is a moss. He would use the dried up spores from lycopodium mosses. Okay. And they're extremely fine powders, still plant material, still mostly cellulose-based like piece of paper. And he would take it and he would put it inside a paint can and he would jam a, a lit candle into the paint can and he would stick a tube onto the side of the paint can okay. and hammer the top onto the paint can. And then he would walk away and he would very dramatically get down behind a desk and tell everybody to back up as far as possible and put up a, you know, a plexiglass shield to protect us all and we're like okay like relax you're being dramatic here yeah and then he would take the tube that he hooked to the side of the paint can and he would blow into it and it would blow air into the paint can which would disturb the really really fine powder mm -hmm. of these lycopodium spores and they would disperse into the air inside the paint can and the candle flame would ignite them and they would burn in a split second and he would create basically not basically he would create a controlled explosion okay he would cause that material to burn so much faster than the paper that weighed the same mm -hmm. and it burned so fast and released so much gas that it would blow the top off the paint can mm -hmm. and it would go firing up and hit the ceiling and you know a huge bang and a gush of fire coming at the top it would look so cool mm -hmm. um and you could do that with people just for fun, right? Certainly they did that on um, on the show Mythbusters. Okay. They didn't do it with like a podium. They did it with powdered creamer. Okay. Uh, but you can do it for fun, for entertainment. But he used it to illustrate a really important uh, chemistry effect, which is that certain things will affect the rate of a reaction. It will re happen more quickly. So an explosion is just a really, really fast, uncontrollable combustion reaction it's just burning but super bananas fast mm -hmm. and one of the things that affects how fast something will react is how small the particles are so if you've got a really big material you know bulky uh, there's not much of it that's actually all that exposed to the oxygen particles in the air mm -hmm. that you need to have a fire right you need a fuel you need oxygen you need a heat source uh, but in a big bulk material only the outside is available to react. But if you chop it up into finer and finer and finer pieces, you get more and more surface area that can react. Mm -hmm. And same amount of material, but more reaction at any given time as possible. Mm -hmm. So size makes a huge difference when it comes to speed. Mm -hmm. And so he used it for that, for that purpose, right? To give you a dramatic, visceral, oh, it really does make a difference. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I do that all the time i've dropped the explosion because i don't want you know i don't want security called freaking out <laughs> uh so now i do it i fling the lycopodium over uh, a lighter and you just get a big 
flare, a big sudden fireball okay. that forms, but no bang. No bang. No. But still visually stimulating. <laughs> That's right. You yeah. know, so and I'll tr- I'll typically pair it with I'll take a piece of wood and I'll try to burn it with my lighter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, it do- it doesn't work, right? And you can talk about things like campfires and how you have to chop a log down to kindling or to tinder to get it started. Mm-hmm. But once it's going, it'll sustain itself. Uh, and then I, you know, I just char the outside of the piece of wood. It doesn't burn. Mm-hmm. And then I say, well, look, I have even less material here, this like a podium, and you throw it through the flame and you just get a yeah. big fireball. It's sudden and dramatic. Yeah. And it has like, uh, so I used to work at the pulp mill here in St. John. So that has real world implications in the sense that like part of the job was uh, spraying down and collecting all the dust every day. Absolutely. Because that's what all that dust, all those particles can be in the air. And you kind of think, well, what's the point of this? But if there ever was a fire, it can happen real quickly that all of a sudden the Absolutely. whole, the, the, literally the air could be on fire or it would appear that way. That's right. And so this happens certainly at pulp mills. Historically, it happened um, in grain milling operations mm. where you'd have grain storage with with very fine powder because it's being milled. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, medieval times, you wouldn't want to work after dark mm-hmm. in, in, a, mm. in a grain mill. Yeah. You wouldn't want a candle flame. Uh, and you... You know, I, I use the example with my first year students. Uh, one of the assignment questions I have is, you know, explain why Wikipedia has an entire page that is lists of grain silo explosions, hmm. right? And it's because it's a fine powder. It is a flammable fine powder. And if you disturb it, and it gets into the air, mm-hmm. uh, that's a lot of surface area you're working with and it can explode. So, mm-hmm. you know, absolutely real, you know, life and death implications for this, uh, as well as illustrating a really crucial fact about kinetics. Mm-hmm. And that same kind of concept can be put into side and put inside like engines that people use to, to get around, right? Like, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think too about like power boilers for like, if you're boiling water and you're running on coal, that would be like you, people might imagine people shoveling in chunks of coal into the boiler, but really what's going on is they're getting ground in the dust first before it's combust to boil the water because that transfers the energy way more efficiently, or it should. It would, it transfers it faster. Faster, okay. Right, so sometimes you don't want fast. Mm-hmm. I mean, the material is going to release uh, the same amount of heat if you burn it uh, and it's in a big chunk or if it is in a small chunk. Mm-hmm. I mean, more or less, there, there's nuance there, but uh, generally it'll release the same amount, but it's in a different amount of time. Mm-hmm. So if you want to harness something quickly, the way that you do that would be different than if you wanted to harness it slowly, mm-hmm. right? You know, you would want a different amount of, uh, you know, tension in a piston for a very fast reaction in a car uh, versus if you were burning the fuel more slowly. Um, you would also want different materials, uh, different thicknesses, different strengths, right? You don't want to accidentally build a pipe bomb in mm. your car. Mm. You you want it to be able to contain that rapid uh, production of gas, mm-hmm. which is what drives your piston. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's nuanced. Yeah, you know that made me think of being a being a kid at a campfire and not under so like parents building the fire and not understanding that like you know it's burning and there's flames. And my father being like, wait till it, uh, the flames calm down and then you get the nice hot coals and then use the coals to cook your, cook your hot dog or marshmallows. And my, my child brain was like, what do you mean? These are these giant flames here. Like, I just want to cook <laughs> the hot right. dog with these giant flames. Yeah. Yeah. You get a, a far less even heat there. <laughs> That's, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But then with campfires, this is another one that it's really easy to do, uh, in terms of outreach. Um, so most kids that have gone camping, will have seen those little packets of magic flame. You throw it in and it makes your campfire turn blue or green mm-hmm. or whatever. And you can you can absolutely use that, you know, something that people are familiar with mm-hmm. uh, to talk about, again, common science uh, principles, right? So these things are all, um, well, they, not all, but often contain uh, metal compounds. Okay. So compounds containing a metal and some other balancing out material and different metals really roughly different metals give you different colors when you put them into flames Uh, so again something that gets taught at the high school and early undergraduate level um, 
is something that you can talk about with kids or you can talk about with teenagers and you can, again, build connections to. It's not just this silly chemistry thing and it's not just some campfire novelty. Mm -hmm. Uh, It also goes into things like streetlights or things like fireworks, right? This is how lots of things that provide light get their colors. Okay. Right? So it's, again, it's a... And a lot of, I guess, outreach is like that. You try and connect something conceptual to something that is familiar. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, that's really interesting. And um, um, oh, now I forget what I was going to ask. I had a question on the top of my head there. Um, so, okay, thinking about fireworks. So that that's what would create the different color fireworks is the compounds in the firework. That's the, right. kind of, the reaction is the same, but the content is different. Is that kind of the one way very, to look at it? Very broadly speaking, yeah. Okay. So the way it works is, um, so you're going to get a really, really spectroscopy for dummies kind of kind of thing here. So the idea is metals have electrons in them. Mm-hmm. And if you give those electrons some energy, they're going to get all excited and they're, they're going to have just more energy. But electrons want to have as little energy as possible. They want to go as low in energy as possible. They're lazy. They want to be on the couch. Okay. So if you give them energy, you know, you shock them with electricity, you put heat into them, whatever. Okay. Uh, they'll end up all jazzed mm-hmm. and they'll be like, no, I don't want this energy. And they're going to release it mm-hmm. so that they can be lazy again. And all that energy they throw away has to go somewhere. Mm-hmm. And with metals, a lot of the time, that energy, they release it as light. Okay. So if you have a firework and you, you know, blow it up, all of a sudden those metal materials that are in there get really hot. Mm -hmm. And so you give their electrons a bunch of energy, but the electrons don't want them. They throw them away. Okay. And they throw them away as light. And if you choose the right metals, it releases as light that people can see. Okay. And different metals have characteristic colors for lots of super complicated reasons, but they all have characteristic colors and you can tweak those to get different shades. So if you want to go blue, you're going to use copper. And if you want to tweak that into a lighter blue or a darker blue, or even into the green, you just take a compound that has copper paired with something else. And depending on what that something else is, you tweak the shade of the copper color that you get released. Okay. And that's all based on the energy, like those different compounds would have different energies in the electrons? Is so that- those different compounds, yeah, they, they're able to, the different compounds, their electrons are able to absorb slightly different amounts of heat energy okay. or electricity or whatever. Um, and then whatever amount of energy they absorb, that is also the amount of energy that gets released. Okay. So what you are effectively doing in a very, really weird way is when you use a firework, you're converting heat energy into light. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So the and and the light energy would be like a photon, right? That would be that's what, right. Yeah. Okay. So you would convert heat energy. You would have uh, the heat energy go into the metal, which would have its electrons absorb a certain amount of that heat, mm-hmm. and they would become what we call excited. And those electrons would say, no, I don't want that heat energy that I've absorbed. I'm going to release that heat energy, but I'm going to release it in the form of a photon Okay. that has exactly the same amount of energy. Okay. And so you use, in some ways, you use the metal as a way of con- filtering amounts of heat into certain colors of light. Okay. Very, very neat stuff. Yeah, that's uh, interesting. Really, really cool. Uh, and it's a fun it's a fun demo to do with kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a fun demo to do with adults. And you know, as people get older and you can trust them around flames more themselves, you can have them you know dip a stick into a solution of these metal compounds, and you can have them stick it into a candle flame and get a neat color themselves. Mm-hmm. right? And they can experiment with that. They can, dip sticks into two different solutions and put them in the flame and they'll find, oh, I blended the colors, you know, just like light theory, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like art school, right? You're, oh yeah. Okay. Okay. You're mixing like orange and green and you get whatever. Yeah. Uh, so you can do the same kind of thing with fireworks. If you want a color that isn't one of the ones that's available to you by metals, mm-hmm. mix two metals. Okay. Right. So it's, it's a pretty versatile 
uh, kind of thing. Interesting. So that makes me think of like, I made me just think about like rock concerts where someone would be in charge of the pyro. So the person, I don't know if that's still what they do these days or whatever, but the person who was in charge of that, they would have to be aware of of these things, right? If they were trying to create a live, like if they were trying to be a creative part of the show, right. and thinking about how the colors of the explosions or pyro are going to match the band's aesthetic or whatever, yep, they would have to be familiar with these reactions. I mean, I, you would hope so. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is you can just buy a lot of these stuffs com- you know, commercially off the shelf, right? Oh, yeah, of course. So okay, they don't okay. have to build it themselves. But the people that designed them yeah. you know, for sale would absolutely uh, be experts in this. And now, a lot of the time, you don't necessarily need to work this out kind of from the ground up, let's say. Mm-hmm. You know, people know more or less what metals give you what colors. And so it okay. becomes a very practical, uh, you don't have to think scientifically about it. You just trial mm-hmm. and error until you get the color you like. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, absolutely. The, initially, that was what you would have to do. Yeah, someone had to at least figure it out in the beginning. It's kind of like when I was studying at NBCC, we were doing power engineering and they have these steam tables that would relate temperature with pressure and everything. Right. And so you didn't have to do the math to fit the thermodynamics, but when they tried to see, you know, when you think about it, someone had to do it. Like someone had Absolutely. to do each calculation and, and realize that it's, you know, the same each time, but someone had to put in that initial work. Oh, and this is, I mean, this is a definitely a thing that is not covered under, you know, the broad area of science outreach generally. Uh, but certainly science education, there's there's a very definite push to make students understand the difference between a tool that you use, mm-hmm. right? A black box is what we would call it, where you put inputs in, you get outputs out. Okay. Uh, that is absolutely a practical thing that you would want to use on a job site somewhere, mm-hmm. but from an education perspective, we want you to understand how that black box actually works. So in your example with the pressure tables, you would want students to be able to do that math to to understand how you're doing those conversions. Mm-hmm. But then in practice, you want them to use the tool. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you don't have to do that calculation 8,000 times, mm-hmm. but it's important that you know how it's done once. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And students often just want to use the tool. Yeah. Yeah, I can understand that the shortcut, maybe shortcut isn't the right word, but that's probably, I mean, it kind of is some of that. You know, you want to you use what, you want it to be easier on yourself. Absolutely. But what's good about learning the foundation, what you just mentioned or talked about is when someone makes a suggestion that isn't quite right, or it gives you kind of that instinctual, like, no, that's wrong. Like, this isn't going to react the way you think it is. Mm-hmm. And then you can stop someone or you can, like, someone's about to use the tool in, in an inappropriate way. Right. It gives you that confidence to say, no, no, you better rethink that, which can be a life-saving moment. Absolutely, it can. Yeah. And so this is, I mean, this, while not kind of directly related to outreach, you know, we're not necessarily concerned with everybody knowing all of science all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, Part of the drive for many science outreach people, I mean, myself included, maybe not everyone, but a lot of us, is this idea that a broad foundational knowledge in science can allow you to spot problems, Mm -hmm. whether that's safety issues, right? Like noticing that there's clouds of potentially flammable dust in the air and knowing the implications of that, mm-hmm. uh, but also hearing about brand new you know, medical announcements or scientific breakthroughs or uh, you know, announcements from politicians. The broader your scientific background is, the more likely you might be able to catch somebody when they're saying something that is questionable or too good to be true or just accidentally wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's got a societal benefit as well. Mm-hmm. I you know I think that's definitely one of my underlying motivations. Aside from the fact that I think it's just awesome and uh, everybody should do it because it's science is sweet. But mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. No, I think you're right, and that made me think of like here in New Brunswick. I can't remember when it was exactly, but MB Power was talking about working with that company in Florida and. I think the initial press release was like, well, this is going to be great because we'll be able, to get, be able to get more energy out than we put in. And like right away, you're like, uh, that's a waste of, like, there's no possible way this is going to work the way you think it is. No, no. You think thermodynamically that there's a problem there. Yeah, it can't be done. Right. And so then you 
that should make you take pause. It shouldn't make you dismiss it. No. Right? And that's the thing. It it should make you stop mm-hmm. that kind of background knowledge. You'd say, okay, I know that in general, getting more energy out than you put in sounds an awful lot like a perpetual motion machine. Mm-hmm. Right? So what is the problem here? Is this, are they talking about some sort of wild fusion reactor? What are we, what are we doing? Mm-hmm. And you know, maybe there have been breakthroughs that you don't know about. Maybe this is brand new technology. Maybe something is happening here, but it should perk your ears up a little bit, mm-hmm. right? So you say, okay, I'm going to slow play this. Mm-hmm. Instead of just taking it for what, yeah, taking the words for what, taking the person at their at their word, because right? they might not be saying it with any malicious intent. Absolutely But it not. just, it makes you uh, stay, stay aware. That's you know? right. I mean, maybe they simply misspoke. Mm-hmm. Maybe they are trying to scam you in some way. I mean, certainly it's very easy to be cynical in this world, but sure. I think most people are not the villain in their own story, right? They, Most people are not trying to be monsters. Mm-hmm. So often it is, they just misunderstand the technology themselves or you know, something to that effect. Uh, but it's important for you to say, oh, that's weird. And then check with another source that you know to be reputable, mm-hmm. right? And if you get confirming information, you can tentatively go along with that mm-hmm. as long as you're open to in the future saying, nope, okay, it has been disproven. That's good. I was right the first time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that, that's that's definitely a thing that you want to have for everybody is just this willingness to be wrong and say, okay, I thought it was this way and I'm happy to go back mm-hmm. or or vice versa. But that, I mean, that's hard, right? People end up with entrenched opinions and it's, it's hard to change your own opinion, right? Yeah, it's really hard. Yeah. It makes me think of one of the things that got me motivated to pay more attention to science was Carl Sagan's um, TV show Cosmos. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember the exact moment. I mean, you could look it up on YouTube, but pretty much all the clips are up there. But he was talking about um, this astronomer at the time had this wild idea about a planet that was like inside Jupiter or something. And he was kind of like laughed at by the scientific community. But the whole point of this little sequence was, was to say that he really shouldn't have been laughed at. Like you're, you should be allowed to present these ridiculous ideas and not be totally shamed about it. But at the same time, you need to be able to present the ideas with, with data. It needs to be verifiable. And like, that's right. It shouldn't just be completely written off, but it should be, it should be, if it's not testable and not, and there's no way to really discuss it. That's really, he was, he's basically saying, automatically labeling the person crazy or wrong was, was, wasn't the right way to go about it. No, certainly, right? The, the correct response is, you show us your data, mm-hmm. we will evaluate it. If it's independently confirmed, that's great. Mm-hmm. And if it's independently shown to be incorrect, well, now we have to have a real conversation, mm-hmm. right? You know, who, which of the two people is correct, mm-hmm. right? And that's when it goes to a broader, you know, set of people, and eventually you end up with, some sort of scientific consensus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that kind of circles back to bias, kind of like what we were talking about at the very beginning. Because you could might you might be so entrenched in your scientific method and what you already know as a scientific professional that you throw up those blinders oh, accidentally, really, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and the problem is it's it's very easy to be fooled too, even you know, unintentionally. Mm-hmm. Right. So one of the one of the ones that I think about with myself is, you know, I, I had to be willing to change. So with the glyphosate that we've talked about, you know, spraying uh, herbicides in, in New Brunswick, um, you know, I looked at some of the safety data related to that. Mm-hmm. And this was, you know, years ago now, but I was I was convinced that so long as this was used in a, you know, reasonably appropriate manner, it was basically fairly safe, certainly no worse than many many other things mm-hmm. right but the it seems like the consensus now is that it's it's a fairly potentially dangerous material mm-hmm. right so it's not necessarily that that original stance was dead wrong but you know change the the change is one of a spectrum like to an extent so now my stance is more that this is probably only safe in very, very specific, careful use cases mm-hmm. and not in, or far less safe in 
kind of more uncontrolled, more real world use cases, mm -hmm. right? So it's not that it's safer. It's not. I mean, you'll be hard pressed to find a chemist who says that a material is good for you or bad for you mm -hmm. without any nuance. Yeah, we're very much of the the dose makes the poison type of people, um, but the level of care that I will put into use of that material has now changed. Okay. Right. So you get, ex you get exposed to stuff and you have to be willing to be flexible with your stances. Mm -hmm. That's really hard. Yeah. You end up with this in this built in defensiveness, right? Yeah. Cause it, it can almost be, you can almost take it personally or something like your ego is attached to it a That's little right. bit. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't do any safety studies on glyphosate, but now I've decided that it's safe. So I'll, I can't be wrong. Yeah. And, you end up with this resistance and yeah. being wrong is a good thing in some ways, right? Mm -hmm. you, you, that's part of the process of science in general is you think something and if it's shown to be wrong, part of the, you know, the, the pride we take in it is our willingness to learn a new thing. Mm -hmm. um, that of course is very optimistic, mm -hmm. but, but yeah. I think that's the goal, right? That's what we strive to be is people who are, happy to learn a new thing. And if that means we have to change a stance, mm -hmm. that should be a mark of pride that you were willing to change. Yeah, yeah, because that's really difficult. And that's kind of, I was, I was going to ask you about like working with younger children or like, like I kind of wonder, because so, so many discoveries are like what you just said, like it doesn't go the, doesn't go the right, like it seems like it's wrong or like a mistake is made and that mistake unlocks that question of like, oh, that's interesting. What's going on here? And then that sends you down the rabbit hole. Is that something like, does that, does that, I'm, I don't know if I'm phrasing this right, but does that ever come up? Do people think that a mistake is a good thing in science? Like that discoveries come from mistakes? Oh yeah. Um, absolutely. That, <laughs> that can happen. Uh, you know, you, you hear about that in science sometimes with the, uh, you know, like, uh, like the development of something like penicillin, where you notice that, oh, this, you know, bread mold, all of a sudden bacteria aren't growing around it. You know, mm -hmm. like, it's not necessarily that you said, oh, I'm going to check and see if bread molds have antibiotic properties. Uh, what can happen is you end up with a moldy Petri dish and you're like, oh, weird. None of the bacteria is growing around that mold, mm -hmm. right? So it's, it's a mistake in one sense, uh, but something really interesting came out of it mm -hmm. or uh, the other times you know the, in uh, the development of a catalyst that is used in the production of well probably not so much anymore but historically used in the production of certain plastics okay um, you know somebody that developed it did so by accident they had a, a dirty flask and the reaction only would work in that one flask Oh, okay. Right. And so they yeah. said, well, geez, what's going on here? Uh -huh. And, you know, if they'd been scrupulous with their cleaning of glassware, you know, they might not have developed this catalyst. But instead, they huh. notice, oh, it only works in these weird cases. What is the similarity between, like, it's consistent. And you say, oh, I'm always using this flask. And you're like, oh, it's got a, you know, some sort of metal residue on the inside. I wonder if it's the metal residue that's doing the, you know, the interesting reaction. Yeah. And so, yeah, that is a, it's absolutely a thing that can happen. That's interesting. Yeah. Because that makes me think too, I know we mentioned earlier that sometimes it can be intimidating to younger people, like some of the flashier stuff. But at the same time, if you can kind of like get across to them that all kinds of discoveries are technically mistakes, so you don't really need to be scared that you don't completely understand everything because no. that might lead you down a path and you might discover something that, uh, you know. No, and that is, it, the thing about being scared is it's in some ways a prerequisite for actually learning something. Um, I, if people often seem to forget this, and it's good to emphasize with, with outreach events, um, that learning is hard. And like I don't mean that in a flippant kind of, you know, learning new things is hard kind of way. I mean it in the same sense that if you want to get stronger, you have to go to the gym mm -hmm. and it sucks, right? Like your muscles can get sore and you're tired and you don't want to do it. And you're like, oh, geez, it's six in the morning. I don't want to make it to the gym, mm -hmm. right? And you have to build it as a habit. And 
it is physical labor. It will tire you out and you will not want to do it, Mm -hmm. but you know it makes you healthier or stronger or whatever. So you power through and you do it. And learning is similar, right? You will will be bad at it at the start. You're not going to be able to run a marathon day one. And it's the same with picking up science or any academic field your brain gets a workout and it's difficult and you will want to quit mm-hmm. when you don't get it right away. Um, but you know, what do they say? The sucking at something is the first step on the way to being kind of okay at something. <laughs> yeah, kind right? of, yeah. And, and that, you know, it's really true. And it's, yeah. and it's important to remind students, kids, adults, it's important to remind me yeah. that you're allowed to be terrible at something. It just means you haven't mastered it yet. Exactly. Uh, and so with, with outreach, you can give students an opportunity to succeed at some things and fail at others. And you can use that failure, like a planned failure, by mm-hmm. the way, uh, as a a way of getting them to interpret their failures. So you mm-hmm. can say, okay, it didn't work. And actually, it didn't work for any of you. Yeah. Or if you're really mean with little kids you make it so only one group works, right? You say, all right, what what did this group that succeeded do differently than you, right? So you can say, all right, this is part of the process. Sometimes you won't get it right. Mm -hmm. And honestly, in science, like 99% of the time, you don't get it right. Mm -hmm. And you thank God for those 1% wins, Yeah. right? So you can give them this exercise of, all right, let's, let's walk backwards. Let's retrace our steps. Where's the difference? What went wrong mm-hmm. so that we don't make that same mistake the next time. Yeah. Right. And that's that's an important skill. And again, one that's really hard to remember regardless of who you are. Mm-hmm. You know, I I hate being bad at a thing. Yeah. Um, but it's the cost of doing business. Yeah. Yeah. That's just part of it. I'm, I'm I can relate. I'm kind of one of those guys who like to be good at something really quickly. Right. So when I'm not, it's frustrating. But at the same time, and it took a long like, you know, I'm almost 40. It took me a while to get to this point where like I took that as a positive sign. Like, I'm not good at this right away. So that must mean there's something of deeper value here that I should pursue <laughs> right. this because I'm going to learn and grow and change in a significant way if I if I don't give in to my uh, fear. That's right. And then again, with outreach, uh, you can emphasize to people that you're allowed to enjoy a thing mm. and be bad at it, mm-hmm. right? If you enjoy painting and you're a bad painter, but you're having a great time. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Keep yeah. at it. And same with science. Like you don't have to be, you know, an Einstein. You can be, yeah, kind of okay. But if you're into it, you're still going to learn something, mm-hmm. right? And that small amount, maybe that you learn, is still valuable. And it's, I think that's important for everybody. I mean, you know, kids on up to recognize that if you got anything out of it that's still getting something out of it, mm-hmm. right? regardless of the extent. Mm-hmm. I think that's a beautiful way to end it. We're pretty much out of time. And um, giving yourself permission to be bad at something if, you, if you're enjoying it, that's a huge, that's a really great message to put out there. Oh, I think so too. Yeah. Fantastic. Absolutely. Is there anything else you want to uh, shout out to the world? Anything we didn't touch on that you wanted to uh, shout out to the world before you... Take off to your next meeting? No, I I think we've almost covered that part of it. I no, I think we're good. I think cool. we've covered a lot of outreach. Yeah, it was been it's been great. And I know I, I jotted down some of the names you mentioned here at the first, so I'll put all that. Um, I'll put some links to the different these folks here. That I'm sure they oh, all have that's YouTube a great and idea. stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'll put that all in the. Um, the description. I'll throw out one book recommendation, and maybe I did this last time we chatted, but Richard Feynman's book, um, uh, The Five Easy, of course, now I can't remember the name of the title. <laughs> I'll put a link to it in the description, but he ex- he walks through like these easy scientific concepts for anyone who just wants the basis of it, and then you can like apply those to real, uh, r- like real world applications, and uh, I find that kind of stuff interesting, so. Yes, and, and Feynman was, you know, Oh, like any older scientist, a little problematic, but my goodness, an excellent writer. And he, he was really good at, uh, he was really good at um, some lectures of his are out on YouTube and uh, they're really good. I'm actually going to look it up right now because I got my laptop right here. I'm going to fact check myself in real time because we got like 30 seconds left. But no, you're right. As you're, as you're searching there, Richard, Richard Feynman, he was a, an excellent author, a really good autobiography. 
Surely you're joking, Mr. Feynman? Yes, that's a great book. That's a good one for for inspiring kids to kind of like, uh, you know, do wacky adventures or wacky. That's uh, right. Well, and, and I read that in high school and I it definitely encouraged me to continue on in science. Mm-hmm. Very powerful book. Odd ending. The last chapter was a little little he got a little philosophical after he won his Nobel Prize, but yeah. the earlier bits were were fantastic. Yeah, I've heard that maybe that happens once you win a Nobel Prize. Like, where do you go from there? <laughs> yeah, I've I've met a couple of Nobel Prize winners, and and I will say, every one of them seemed to have gone off the rails a little bit. Really? Okay, yeah. it's like astronauts. Once they finally get into space, yes, where do you go? Right. Where do I go now? That's right. So the, that book I was thinking of is called Six Easy Pieces: Essential uh, Essentials of Physics by its most brilliant teacher. And it touches on all kinds of cool stuff. Cool. All right. Thanks a lot, uh, Professor Granger. I appreciate you coming in again. This was super cool as it was last time. That's right. No, thank you for having me. I had a, a great time. I'd cool. Be happy to do it anytime. Yeah, we'll do it. We'll go for the hat trick maybe That's sometime right. later this year. Beautiful. Awesome. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye.